Well, good morning, Christ community. I'm Jordan Green, part of the pastoral team here, and I'm grateful to be with you this morning. It was 1939, the beginning of the Second World War, and the branch of the British government in charge of publicity and propaganda commissioned morale-boosting posters to be displayed during testing times. The first of these two posters was your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. A little wordy on a poster. But the second, freedom is, freedom is in peril. And while these signs were widely circulated, you're not familiar with any of them, probably. You are, however, familiar with the third. Keep calm and carry on. And while you may know the history of this poster, I want to share part of it this morning because this sign was actually never displayed. It was a poster commissioned and meant to be displayed when Germany would invade Britain, and it was never used. Yet today, it's one of the most recognizable slogans. Now, of course, it's catchy and provides fodder for an unlimited supply of memes. But isn't it interesting that in our culture, we would be so drawn to a poster meant for a people being invaded. This is a sign meant for a people whose very lives were uncertain. A people whose world was out of control. And it's this sort of sign that our culture gravitates towards. And so I ask you, can you resonate with this? Do you wake up and think, what's the world coming to? Of course, this time of year, we can point to the political arena. Anyone anxious there? What about the state of our prison system, where America holds the highest incarceration rate in the world, with Russia coming in at a distant second? Or maybe we see the world of law and religious liberty spiraling out of our hands. But maybe it's even closer to home, the loss of a job, the pressures of work. We are terrified of losing control. Yet this might be the best news for us. And we see the entire book of Daniel, which we'll be exploring over these next few weeks, is written about and for people who had never felt more out of control, who had never felt more powerless or abandoned, who are asking what happened to God's promises. They saw their world in a cataclysmic upheaval. And, but the big idea we see this morning, and we'll explore over these next few weeks, is that we were never meant to have control in the first place. We were never meant to have control in the first place. So let's dive in. Please turn in your Bibles to Daniel 1, a short book in the middle of the prophets. If you have an electronic Bible, it's probably a little easier to get to. But it begins, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now I know what you're thinking. What are these funny names? And did he pronounce them right? Because I'm not sure I did either. You're asking, how did we get here? We are placed in the midst of two kings and two kingdoms two different ideologies, two different beliefs about the right way to live, and one is overtaken. Judah is overtaken by Babylon. 
Yet within these two verses is contained hundreds of years of history and geopolitical chess moves. So let me attempt to paint the landscape. And I know history might seem boring, likely not your favorite subject in school. But if you're a believer in the Bible, you're a student of history. But more than that, this narrative about Daniel, it's part of our family history. It's like when you gather at family reunions, for those of you that still do that. It's not just the thing where you have to sit next to the awkward uncle as he tells you about his life. But we gather around and we end up telling stories about our family's past. A past that's shaped our family and ultimately shapes who you are, for better or worse. So we're telling the story of our family's past, and it's a sordid one. To get our bearings, let's remember Israel, composed of 12 tribes, the apex of which is King David, a unified kingdom, under a man with many faults and failings, but who desired to follow God's leading. And after his rule, it just starts going downhill. I have a little chart for you. <laughs> just look at the ridiculousness of this and now memorize it. But I show this not so much for the specifics, but to give the big picture. Because we're going to pick up this history with Hezekiah there in the yellow box, a little way down the line. And one of the most attested biblical stories. But we see at the top, within two generations of David's kingdom, of this unified kingdom, the kingdom splits. And then for 200 years, you have the northern kingdom Israel separate from the southern kingdom of Judah. There, that bottom pink blob, tiny. And 200 years after this split, Israel, the northern kingdom, falls to the Assyrians. And like I said, our story really picks up towards the beginning of this lonely kingdom, Judah, the little pink blob. The other Israelite tribes have fallen, and Judah's all that's left. The king is Hezekiah, a man who is miraculously saved by God in the face of the Assyrians. And as a side note, this event, this saving by God from the Assyrians is one of the most attested Old Testament stories found in Kings, Chronicles, Isaiah, and Micah, but it's also found in Assyrian texts, like this one, the Annals of Sennacherib, known as the Taylor Prism. And that's, that's extra. That's just for your own edification. But we find that after this deliverance, Hezekiah himself is healed from certain death by God with the promise that God, who saved him from the Assyrians, would continue to defend the city against the Assyrians. What a promise. Yet, the Assyrians were knocking on Judah's door. They were conquering the world, and they were terrifying. The Assyrians, in fact, shock historians with their brutality and the way they flaunted it, both bark and bite. For us, it would be as if ISIS took over Canada, and God saying, don't fear, don't look to others, I'll defend you what would you do? I can't imagine the fear, the anxiety. Well, as you might expect, Hezekiah does not trust God. So when Babylon, a country in the east, sends emissaries to strike an alliance, Hezekiah jumps at the chance. He shows them all the gold and treasures of the temple as a way of saying, hey, let's buddy up. Let's form an alliance. You see, Hezekiah 
takes control into his own hands. He trusted Babylon instead of God. He tried to take control into his own hands when it felt like he had no choice. But in the end, this doesn't work. And in a terrible irony, Isaiah the prophet, who tells this story, tells Hezekiah what's to come. He says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So we find ourselves back at Daniel 1, 1 through 2. Less than 100 years later, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy to Hezekiah. Two kings and kingdoms struggling for control and the Babylonians coming out on top. And this backdrop is so important because we learn that God is not pleased when we try to take control. Hezekiah didn't trust God. Even after having been delivered from the Assyrians once and healed from the point of death, he chose to put his hope in a different nation that would eventually destroy Israel. A nation that within the biblical literature would be considered the very personification of evil. God is not pleased when we try to take control because we were never meant to have ultimate control in the first place. This is a sin that began in the garden and it persists till now. It's the same as it ever was. We desire control and the false security that comes with it and we'll do whatever we can in order to get it but it's just an illusion of security, an illusion of hope. Because we were never meant to have ultimate control in the first place. Now, this doesn't mean we're called to inaction, so please don't misunderstand me. We'll talk about that stuff. We have eight weeks. But rather, a recognition and trust in the one who holds all things together. The problem is that we are obsessed with control. It's an insatiable desire. We invent new technologies to gain it, and we build structures, physical and social, to keep it. Craig Gay, a lecturer at Regent and writer on Christianity and culture, writes it like this. The crucial threat that the modern world poses to faith does not actually lie in the denial of God's existence, as much as it lies in the tacit repudiation of divine authority. And isn't that so true? We believe in God, but act like he's not in control. Rather, we act like the hope of our world, of our nation, depends on the right person or party being in power, the right laws, the right movement. And we'll do anything to get control and keep it. But in Daniel verse 2, we see the most important two words for this book. For this book. The Lord gave. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Babylon's hand. And I don't know about you, but this is both hard and good to hear. For a people who love control, this is a bit of a downer. But for those who find themselves without control, 
This is a source of hope. And it's so important because we can't understand the rest of Daniel without the setup these two verses provide. God is the one in control over both the good and the bad. Israel's deliverance and their downfall. We're not in charge of the world and we were never meant to be. Now, no doubt, Hezekiah's unfaithfulness led to Israel's downfall. But even in the midst of this, we see God's involvement. Because it's not Babylon who's now in control. Babylon might have taken over, but they're not really in charge. The true power lies with the one who has the authority to give it. That's who's in control. Thus, in these first two verses, we're told that God is in control. He's in control of the big picture, the broad tides of history. But God's sovereignty is over more than the broad strokes of history. So Daniel enters the scene, and our narrative continues with Daniel 1, 3, and following. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. In this shift, we've gone from the big picture of a world out of control, and finding that a world out of control creates lives without control. There we find Daniel, the best and the brightest of the youth. Because you see, when you're going to take over a country, this is a great way to do it. So take note. And it is brilliant. There are many ways to take over a country and keep control. The Assyrians before and Alexander to come would have different ideas, but Nebuchadnezzar does two things to take control of a people. First, as we already saw, he took the sacred things from the temple, and in a statement to mock God, he placed them in the plunder of his own God. And second, he decided to remove the best and the brightest from the youth, taking them from all they know and assimilate them into Babylonian culture. Get rid of everything that made them a Jew and mold them for his benefit. He would teach them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. They would eat and drink his food. They would be educated for three years. Now, I know some of us get nervous about what's being taught in our schools. Well, Daniel was educated in paganism, in cultic worship. In fact, here's a picture of what one of his textbooks might have looked like. Now, if you're a doctor or a vet, this might look familiar, but it's shaped like a liver, and it's not a medical guide. One of the most common things that were taught in Babylonian culture would have been how to read the liver of certain animals and thus be able to tell the future. Kind of gross, right? These youths were brainwashed, indoctrinated. And in verses 6 through 7, we see they were renamed so that all their history was gone and their very identity changed. Look there with me. I'm going to go through some of the names. Hananiah, whose name meant Yahweh has been gracious, was changed to Shadrach, enlightened by the sun god. Mishael was who is like God, but now 
is Meshach, who is like the god Aku. Azariah was Yahweh is my help, but now he's Abednego, the servant of God Nego. And of course, Daniel, God is judge, is Nebelteshazzar, the prince of Bel, another false god. Every time someone called their name, a reminder of what they lost, a reminder of the evil around them. This is what the biblical writers call exile, being removed from the land of God's promises and living in a place where everything seems against you and against the ways of God. Exile is the epitome of a world out of control and a life out of control. And it's important to look at Daniel because we're tempted to only say, see Hezekiah, he didn't trust God. And if you don't trust God, you'll be sent into exile and the world will fall apart. And this is generally true. But if this is all that we say, we miss something really important. Because sometimes exile happens to those who aren't directly at fault. Daniel was a kid who not only lived in a world seemingly out of control, but lived a life out of his control. And we know that you don't have to be drawn out to another country to experience this type of exile. To feel like there's no control over the world and where it's going and how it will affect your life. With an election year that's been more circus than anything, issues over a dysfunctional education system, or the battle over religious liberty and fear for where it's headed, just to name a few. These and many others cause us to look for places to grab control. And yet the good news is that we're not in control, no matter how much we think we are or should be. And this is good news, because our hope does not lie in our ability to control things, thank goodness, or the right political party, But our hope lies in a God who creates and sustains us. God gave. Those words from verse 2 are a backdrop to Daniel and the hope for our situations. But this is hard. There's no doubt about it. And while over the next few weeks, we'll be talking more about how to live in a world out of control, I think there are three ways from this passage that we learn to recognize our own out-of-control lives within God's control. First, see the opportunity. And this may sound counterintuitive. And believe me, it's not to disregard the practice of lament, which is a proper response in the midst of upheaval. In fact, it's often the first response. But it's an attempt in the midst of our anxiety about the world to see the opportunity found in trusting God. And in some ways, it's a teaser to the rest of Daniel's story, because Daniel's story isn't all sunshine and rainbows, and it's especially dark here. But Daniel is used by God to bring light in a very dark place, and in spite of a very dark situation. And this is exciting. It's the difference between worrying about threats and trusting God to see opportunities. We may be anxious when it seems like the church is losing power in our society. And we definitely see all the threats this creates. They are very real. But this can also be an opportunity for the church to stand out all the more. 
an opportunity to show where our true citizenship lies and our place to reveal a hope in God. Second, stop trying so hard to get control. Like Hezekiah, we take whatever control we can get, but we're fighting a losing battle against the one in control. And it's a tough question to ask ourselves, but we, we want to think, where are we fighting against God? Because when we feel control slipping away, we don't usually look to God. Instead, we often do one of three things. We either grab, we grandstand, or we just give up. We grab control with wide-eyed worry. This was Hezekiah. Control wherever he could get it. We jump on political bandwagons, we micromanage at work, or we manipulate our kids and family. We do anything we can to feel safe and in control. But it's an illusion of control, and in the end, does more harm than good. Or we might grandstand. We may lose control or power, but we're going to look down on everyone who has it. We'll sneer and mock those in power, but accomplish nothing. Or we just give up. And this is actually a form of taking control, isn't it? We think, if I can't be in control, if I can't have it my way, I'm out of here. I give up. See ya. And this concept always reminds me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and one of my all-time favorite heroes of the faith. When Germany was falling apart and Hitler's power was rising, Bonhoeffer had the chance to leave. In fact, he was already in America. But against the wishes of everyone, he went back, stating, I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share in the trials of this time with my people. And those trials cost him his life. In a world out of control, we don't give up. We don't dissolve to inactivity. It's not what Bonhoeffer did. It's not what Daniel does. And it's not what we should do either. And thirdly, we learn from those without control. In some ways, that's what we're doing by reading Daniel. The story of a man who stayed faithful and trusted God in the midst of a world falling apart. Because here's the kicker. Daniel lives his entire life in exile. This side of the resurrection, there's no resolution. He never makes it back to Judah, the land God promised his people. Now, we see that God did amazing things in Daniel's lives, miraculous things, but in unexpected ways. The expectation and the hope was that God would return his displaced people to the land he promised. But in Daniel... We find a man and his friends who seek to be faithful and to recognize the one who's really in control, whether or not they make it home. And living without control has been much of the minority church's experience throughout the history of this world. Charlie Dates, an African-American pastor in Chicago, writes this, Evangelical churches in America can benefit from the testimony of other Christians who have long lived on the cultural margins, from a people group who wielded no political influence or economic superiority, a people who functioned largely as a subset or minority in the larger American evangelical story. And not only do we learn from the minority church in America, 
but we also learn from the minority church throughout the world. Through our partnership with Elon Ministries, we not only get to partner with, but to learn from the Christians in Iran. This is a place where just last month, five Christian brothers were arrested during an afternoon picnic. But also where this last week, we see 214 Iranians and Afghans following faithfully in baptism. Faith in the midst of chaos, in the midst of despair. There's so much we can learn from our brothers and sisters about faithfulness and the reality of God's control in a world seemingly out of control. But despite all this, you still might be thinking, what good is it that God's in control when bad things continue to happen to me and my family? I'm just pleading with God to fix it. And I get that. This is what many of us feel but don't want a voice. And there's no perfect answer, especially when you're in the midst of crisis. Because the truth is the world is broken. And we do lament. We cry out for final restoration, for justice. But there are two things that have helped me and two points that I want to end our time with together. First, we recognize that God is in ultimate control. And when we realize that, we realize that we don't own anything. Nothing is really ours, not our families, nor our own lives. And this was made crystal clear to me a year ago when my wife and five-year-old daughter were in a car wreck out in Colorado. At the time, I was in Chicago, and I had no control over anything. The car was totaled, Avery was screaming, and I was a thousand miles away. It turned out they were okay. But in that moment, I knew and I realized that nothing was mine, but that everything was a gift of grace. The truth is, we deserve so much worse than we have it. I know this might not seem like it, but it's the truth. Anything we do have is simply a gift of grace. And the second point is that when we ask this question about a God who's in control, we tend to assume that bad things don't affect God, that he's not personally involved, or as the old phrase goes, he's got no skin in the game. And yet, he has more skin in the game than we can possibly imagine. Looking at this event in Daniel, God allowed his temple to be sacked and then mocked in Babylon, which is a huge statement. And from our place in history, we see even more than Daniel how much sin and the bad stuff of life has cost God. Because Jesus took on flesh and suffered the ultimate price. And any time we think that God's not personally involved in our troubles and our worries in a world out of control, we look to the cross where Christ submitted himself and laid down control of his very life, becoming a slave unto death. And it's at that place where the sufferings of a world out of control find their resolution. Because Christ made a way back, a way back from exile and hope for a future home.
So this morning, as we consider God who holds the whole world in his hand and his son who paid the price for that world, we want to respond with communion. Because it's that communion where we remember Jesus and proclaim his death until the resurrection. Because until then, we're in exile, just like Daniel. We wait for the return of our Lord and Savior, the one in whom all things hold together. There are stations all around the room. Come up five or six at a time to take the bread and dip it in the cup. But I'm going to pray for us first. And then, if you're a follower of Jesus, please come when you're ready. Father in heaven, sometimes it just feels like the world is falling apart, as though our lives are out of control. And we confess this anguish to you. But we also declare your rule and goodness over us and this world, a defiant hope in the face of injustice. May we be a people who look to you for strength and power rather than the world. We are so thankful for your son in whom all things hold together. In his name we pray, amen.